Thank you for being with us today. We would love to have you join us in person. To partner with us or to give online, go to www.upperroomohio.com. We hope you enjoy this message. So, how are you? Yeah, good. Man, fun stuff going on, fun stuff happening. Thanks for being here. Uh, I know there's a lot of great churches to, to, to go to on Sundays. You just happen to find the best one today, so congratulations, you won. You're winners. You're winners. Um, I was thinking maybe, uh, maybe Tippet Canoe Fitness would want to relocate Saturday's workouts to here on Saturday 4 p.m., like group-style workout to set up the tents. That'd be amazing. Uh, anyway... Oh, what a fun day. There is a pastor here, there, and I do preach. My name's Aaron, and uh, I, we took a few weeks off. Then we had a vacation Bible school celebration. I did speak. It was a little different than normal. Last week, we committed our entire services to just praying, worshiping, and blessing those who were affected by the shootings. And, um, and if you weren't here, it was super powerful. And uh, we, we do not regret that for a minute. We're not fearful that we might lose people, that it wasn't a traditional service. Uh, we believe something changes in the atmosphere. Worship oftentimes reveals heaven and it's intercession that secures it. And uh, so we just went into worship and intercession, praying for those affected by the tragedy and praying for our nation and praying for um, just everything. How many know that our nation needs prayer? How many know that it's always needed prayer? <laughs> this is nothing new. This is nothing strange, unfortunately. Um, but we just were contending in prayer for our nation, for this region. And one of the things, if you weren't here last week, that I just want to share is we do not want to be a region with our identity known as a heroin epidemic, our identity known as a tornado thing, or our identity as a mass shooting. Dayton in the Jim City in the region in the Miami Valley need to have an identity of a, of, a, of a people, of a region that's on fire for Jesus, a region that's transformed in his presence, a region that loves Jesus. And that's what we're declaring her identity, our identity as a region will be. So anyway, uh, it's a lot going on next week, all right? I, you're welcome to just blindside people, tell them they're coming to a church picnic, and then we got a mini service ahead of time. All right, we're going to share the gospel. Steve Bowen's actually going to help me with that. Uh, we're going to offer an opportunity for salvation. So it's going to be a very, very short service. We know when we start at 10, it's pretty cool outside. By the time 10.30, 10.40 rolls around as we're wrapping it up, that sun is starting to be hot. So we're going to get the tents as close as we can this time to the stage to offer some shade. Um, but we've got a, a barbecue food truck coming all the way from Columbus. So, yep, we're like cook enough ribs and pulled pork for 400 people. So bring your friends, bring your neighbors. If we run out of meat, that's okay. You're supposed to bring a side dish to share. So make sure you do that. So anyway, it is a mini service. It's a one-hour service tops. Uh, then we're going to just have a cookout and have fun and just, just get to know one another. It is a fun event of the year. All right, then we got the marriage thing coming up. But um, I just want to I, I just want to highlight something, man. God is so good. We we got a word this week of a financial blessing in our life that's just absolutely insane. So did Cheryl and Walt. They they went by faith, started up a company, and they just had this supernatural. I'm not going to share it, but they can win and how they want. But a supernatural financial blessing literally fall in their lap. 
So there's things that we do with our finances. It's one way that we get to worship God. It's his finances, not ours. But the declarations, those are powerful. And we say that before every time we give because I want to be so intentional with my giving, so intentional with my time, so intentional with my sowing that it's actually for something. Like we get to partner with heaven and get heaven's reward, but yet see Jesus fulfill his great assignment that the whole earth will hopefully come to know Jesus. Now in the process in that, and I'm partnering with that, all of a sudden the heavens break loose and it says that, that it can't contain all that what heaven will have to offer. So just, just telling you, the Bible says test God in your finances, test him in tithing, test him in giving, and just see if the floodgates of heaven don't pour out. You can read it. It's in the Word. So if you just want to test it, give a little next week, next month, you know, whenever God challenges you to do that. And I'm telling you, things are breaking loose in the financial world um, that the kingdom can keep moving forward. Amen? Woo! All right. Today, I want to, um, I want to talk on a really uh, unpopular topic in the church and something that I feel is absolutely rampant, and it is a travesty, and it's shame. I want to speak on shame, and here's the thing, there's a difference between sin and shame, and there's a difference between sin, guilt, conviction, shame, all right, and I'm going to kind of define all of that, but here's the deal, I feel that sin will take you somewhere, but it's shame that keeps you there, maybe even takes you deeper. Sin may take you to a place, sin may affect you, sin may affect my life, but it's shame that keeps me there. See, Jesus, he died for it all. He gave himself all for all of our freedom so that we can be free in every area. He died not only for our eternity in heaven, he died so that we can also experience heaven on earth. And oftentimes, sin is something that might pull us into something, and then it's shame that settles in. It's shame that, that changes our thinking. It's shame that actually changes how we see ourselves, and it's not how God sees us. And then it affects our future in living out a free life in Christ. So I've seen it so often. So through my years of experience, even my personal experiences, it's, it's something that's really passionate me because I think shame cripples us in Christ. I feel that shame keeps us down. See, shame is the, the feeling, it's the thought, it's the emotion of not feeling that we're good enough, not feeling worthy, not feeling accepted. And shame is always trying to convince us of who we're not. See, that's the role of shame. Shame convinces us who we're not when God's trying to convince us and let us know who we are. So we're going to literally just soak in, in, in just 15 scriptures today. We'll veer off a little there. You know how I love rabbit trails. But we're going to focus really Genesis 3, 1 through 15. We're going to go all the way back to the root of sin, the root of shame. And we're going to kind of just, just, just talk about this. And then I believe that at the end of service, God's going to offer freedom, not just from sin, but shame. See, see, shame is usually connected to sin in some way, shape, or form. Usually shame is either a result of us sinning, us having sinned, or sin being committed to us. See, listen, it doesn't even have to be my sin, but if I was raped, then I might carry shame from that sin that affects my life forever because I don't feel I'm worthy and I'm insignificant and that happened to me, etc. So it's not just the, the shame as a result and connected to the root of my sin, it's also connected to other sins that may have affected me. So, but I believe this, that Jesus came to give life and life abundantly, and it's the enemy that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10, 10, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came to give life and what? Life abundantly, more abundantly, that we can live a free life as sons and daughters in Christ, free from sin, free from shame, and free from the lies of the enemy. 
So let's, let's just go into this. Let me, let me define shame as Webster's. A painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. See, there is a difference between sin, guilt, conviction, and shame. Let me say, sin is, is missing the mark. We defined sin a couple weeks ago. We talked about what we told the vacation Bible schoolers what sin was. Sin is literally translated from missing the mark. In the, in the scripture, the Greek word from missing the mark. It's like a marksman who's pulling back that bow and arrow, trying to hit the bullseye. That would be righteousness. And anytime we're in sin, we're just missing that mark. It's a compass that's a little bit out of alignment. So here's what conviction does. Conviction and guilt are very, very close. So guilt is something, a feeling of a particular action that I feel bad about. Shame is the overall thing saying me as a whole don't feel worthy and I'm affected by the emotion that guilt caused or sin caused and now me as a whole feels I'm not worthy. So, so sin is simply missing the mark. Sin I define as doing or not doing anything that displeases the Lord. It's doing or not doing what we're supposed to do that actually displeases the Father. It's, it's doing things that don't please the Father or not doing the things that do please the Father that we have a conviction by. Are, are you with me so far? So then it carries on. So guilt reveals what we did. Shame lies about us about who we are. Conviction is the magnetic force that pulls us back to the true north in the compass. Conviction is that thing that helps us come right back to the bullseye when we're making that mark. See, in conviction, that's the gray area. There's some things that I may be convicted. In our house, this is, this is fun. In our house, we have a lot of curse words, all right? We can't say dumb, stupid, idiot, butt, fart, okay, pee. We don't say those words. Those are cuss words in our house. We're convicted to have a pure language where we don't use anything negative. Now, now I'm not coming at you if you use pee. We use potty, okay? Our girls are 12 and under, so we still use potty, all right? So we don't, we don't say some of the slang, but the thing about idiot or stupid or dumb, those aren't in our vocabulary because we want our girls to never say anything negative about anybody else or call each other those names. So, so even in the language of that stupid, no, no, that's something we don't like, you know, or something like that. So, so this week we had an issue and, and they're like, one of the girls was teasing somebody else, say, you're doing this like so-and-so. I was like, uh-uh, no, no, we don't do that. See, see that conviction in that, that, that thing, it it's might be different. Your language in your house, maybe you say but. That's okay. All right? We don't say but. We say bottom. So that's the conviction that kind of changes. And, and I can't wait. We're starting a series this fall, either September or October, called Real Talk. All right? We're going to talk about uh, same-sex relationships. We're going to talk about pornography. We're going to talk about these things like tattoos and alcohol and <laughs> what the Lord thinks about some of these things. And, and I'll be honest with you, we're a church that's not afraid to call sin, sin, but also love Jesus where people want to love Jesus and let him do the convicting. See, see, here's the thing. We get really, really fast as Christians, as people of the Lord, as believers, and want to condemn everybody and convict everybody. No, that's actually Holy Spirit's role. And he does a really good job at it. And when he does it, it's way more effective than when we do it. So we're going to talk about the challenging things that most churches and people and believers don't want to talk about. We, we've tried this out and we did like a sample testing at our young adult gathering. And it was so fun. We gave the five most challenging questions about things like if weed was legal recreationally, would it be okay to smoke pot? Just fun things like that, right? Am I the only one that thinks about this stuff? Well, let me just tell you, the people you're encountering are thinking about this stuff, and the church has never given good answers for some of this. 
So it's time we educate and actually train and get what the word says about stuff rather than just what our, our grandpas told us or what this church one time told us or, or what this televangelist told us or has told so many other people. Listen, the, the days of selling prayer cloths on the, on the TV to try to get money and personal gain are, are need to be over. The prophetic is not supposed to be perverted in that way. It's supposed to be a gift that loves people to the point where we get to reveal people the way God sees them, not the way that man might see them. That's what shame does. Shame takes a person and it's allowing the enemy to win the battle of how they're seeing themselves rather than how heaven and how the Father is seeing these people. Shame is convincing me of who I'm not rather than telling me who I am. Let me, let me move on. Shame makes us think unlike the way that we were created to think. So let's go to Genesis 3. Let's just dissect this. Is this a good topic for today? You guys liking this? I'm having fun. I've been looking forward to this one for a few weeks. There's been some stuff like, no, no. Oh, I was going to preach this, and and Nicole's like, oh, no, it's vacation Bible school celebration day. You got to do that. I'm like, what? And then last week, unfortunately, which I don't regret, but I've, this has been kind of brewing in me for a few weeks. I went to Florida, went to a ministry um, uh, time and got some restoration, got some fueling, got some filling up. And part of what I realized I was struggling with was the shame in my areas from things that had happened to me and things I had also been a part of. So anyways, Genesis 3, 1 through 15 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, now here's the thing. Oftentimes, the enemy, in our identity as sons and daughters, one of the first things the enemy wants to do is have us question our identity as sons and daughters. If you remember, when Jesus was baptized, the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, right? Heaven's opened up. There's this radical experience that I preach about often that Jesus hadn't yet done a miracle yet. He hadn't healed the dead or raised the dead or healed the sick. He hadn't preached Sermon on the Mount, hadn't died on the cross, Right? But the Father's saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm proud. Because He loves you for who you are, not what you do. Listen, it's, it's who you are that makes you do what you do, not what you do that makes you who you are. So then the very next thing, though, is Jesus going up on the mountain and He's going in the wilderness. And then the enemy, it says He was tempted, and the enemy tried to convince Him that He wasn't the Son of God. He says, well, if you are the Son of God, then do this or do that. The very first thing after the father says, this is my beloved son, was the temptation to believe that he wasn't truly the son of God. So here we come in here. It says this. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, now here's the interesting thing. He's saying your eyes will be opened so that you'll know good and evil. See, to this point, the garden was perfect. God put Adam and Eve in paradise. There was no evil. They only saw good. They only saw righteousness. They only saw purity. We were literally designed and created to only see good, but we're born into a sinful world that changes our perspective and God's calling us to live from a, a, a perspective of repentance. The penthouse perspective to see higher. He says, call, he says, come up here, I'll show you great and marvelous things. God is inviting us and has always invited us to see from a heavenly perspective the way he sees situations. 
issues, circumstances, shootings, people. Listen, last week we said our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it's principalities, it's rulers of this dark world. It's, 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 it's a spiritual force, it's not people. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat, of your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, now here's an interesting thing. Nicole says, let's plant Jesus in the center at, at at transition, she's saying, let's plant Jesus in the center. Let's put him in the center of everything. If you recall, Genesis 2.9 has actually said there were all these trees in the garden, including the tree of life. In the center of the garden was the tree of life. Then there was this other tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, the only tree you can't eat from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, he said, you can eat of every other tree, including the tree of life, which symbolizes who is the bread of life. Who's the tree of life? Jesus. Jesus is the true of life. So all of a sudden, he's planted in the center. Anytime we begin to veer off of that, now all of a sudden we open up ourselves to something other than his true plan for our lives. Let's, let's go on here. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? We're going to get back to this. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, I hid myself. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? You, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, now here's, this is interesting, and I want you to know that this dialogue, when God's asking questions, it's never for information. He already knows. It's, it's for relationship. Listen, this, this question of, of, of where are you wasn't a question of, of what did you do. A question of what did you do would be religion. A question of where are you is relationship. It's a question of intimacy with him wanting to know where are you in this? Where is your heart? Where, where are we? That's essentially what he's asking. Otherwise, if it was a question of religion and works and performance, it would have said, what did you do? Why did you do that? He's saying, where, where are you? Now, God, the God, the omnipotent, omnipresent God, obviously knew where they were, knew what they did, but he's being relational here. Let me, let me move on. Then the man said, verse, verse 12, then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me with me, she gave me a fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. <laughs> it's everybody else's fault, isn't it? Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity in, in in between you and the woman, between you, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He, he is Jesus, by the way. It's the first prophetic verse in scripture referencing Jesus as Messiah. He says, he will bruise your head. This is to the enemy. He will bruise your head and he and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's an interesting comment. I think, well, that means like how, Jesus wins. How, how's his heel gonna be bruised? We're gonna get to that. So here's the deal. Here's the progress of sin. Sin leads to shame. Shame leads to fear. Fear leads to isolation. Okay, so, so here's the thing. If, 
this is not a behavior modification system, all right? Jesus came to, to, to change it all. Jesus came to forgive us of all of our sins, to start us new. When we say yes to Jesus, all of a sudden, chains break off, and I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm a new creation. All old things have passed, and all new has come, to where now I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind because I get to think differently, because I see Jesus differently, I see others differently, I see myself differently. The greatest commandment is summed up, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor what? As yourself. So all of a sudden, I begin to see these things differently. Now, now here's the deal. When I'm in sin, or if I'm not yet in Christ, or, or I slip back to old nature, Listen, here's what happens. I begin to have these experiences in my life. Let, let me give you, let's go back to the sail experience, all right? Talked about this. I, I wrecked a sailboat, did tons of damage on it, and it was just kind of a bad day having a speedboat come rescue you in the middle of the ocean, and you've broke a very expensive sailboat, okay? So, now here's the deal. I had an experience. Experiences usually lead to a different thought pattern, and then it changes my behavior. You see, see, experiences in life, good or bad, create a thought, and then I choose what I'm going to do with that thought, whether I'm going to partner with a lie or believe God's truth. Now, I had that wreck. I get pulled in. They teach me what I did wrong, all right, in a very humiliating, somewhat condescending way. Somewhat deserved it. So here's the deal. I had a choice, and after I brought them, I already exposed this to the church. After I brought them a very large cash tip and a case of beer, they began to really change their attitude towards me and love me very well. So it was to avoid a $7,000 bill for this sailboat. It worked. So here's the deal. I'm not condoning alcohol. We'll talk about that in real talk, okay? I'm also not saying it's wrong for you, in a sense. Come back September, October, we'll chat. So anyway, here's the deal. I, I, so then they said, after I bring this back, they're like, listen, you have to come back. Come back tomorrow. We're going to get your confidence back. You're going to get back on this sailboat. And by the end of the week, you're going to be able to take your kids and you're going to get the bigger sailboat. And at that moment, I'm like, I just wanted to walk away be like, I'm done with the sailboat. This was day one of vacation. All right? And I love sailing. I love being on the water. I love it. It's just uh, it's something in me just loves it. So I had a choice. I had an experience Okay, now all of a sudden I have a thought and now it's going to change my behavior. Am I going to get back on that sailboat and try and believe the truth that I can do this, that I'm a more than conqueror, right? Or am I gonna believe the lie that I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I'm never gonna learn, I'm not smart enough, I'm not gonna be able to have the intuition to know what to do if the wind comes again. Like, no, so here's the deal, in life, it's not a behavior modification where we just change our behavior and God loves us more. No, he changes the inside by what he did on the cross and then we see God differently so we see ourselves differently. Then all of a sudden, when my heart's changed, the outside, the behavior wants to change. So we get to this place of shame that shame wants to actually keep you there and believe the lies rather than the freedom that Christ paid for us to believe the truths. I know this is very teachy and it's a lot, but I believe it's important because we can dabble in sin and get totally free because we can, in our heads, picture Jesus dying on the cross for sin. It is harder for us to forgive ourselves and walk out of that shame. See, oftentimes, it's us that needs to forgive ourselves in the realm of shame where we know God forgave us for the sin. This is super powerful if you get this because it's connected to one of my passions, identity and knowing who and whose we are. So, so here we get to the fruit of shame. 
first in verse 310. It says, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. So the first fruit of shame, the first step is fear. The first thing that happens after we, we sin and now we're walking in shame is fear. He says, I was afraid, all right? So they had listened and they were convinced who the enemy was saying they were. Well, if, if this is true, did God really say that? Are you really this? Did he really say that? So it's fear. It's now, listen, they hid and they wouldn't own up to the Father because they were afraid. The first fruit is fear. The first fruit of, of shame is fear. Oh, what's people gonna think about me? Oh, am I gonna be able to get out of this? Oh man, am I, is, this, is, is this really who I am? It's all these things and you in your own, own realm or idea here of what you might be struggling with or in the past you can see that, yeah, this has kind of taken root in my life, whatever that fear would have been. Okay, the next thing, so, because see, fear, when we're walking outside of our identity, okay, we begin to have these insecurities and fears and these things. And let me just tell you this, it's harder to raise our hands in freedom when we're holding on to fear and insecurities and shame. All of a sudden, when we break free of that and we realize that the Lord paid a price for that too and we get to walk free in that, now I can lift my hands and I can be free and free indeed is what we are. The second fruit is control. Okay, I was, I was afraid and I was naked. Control means now I'm gonna try to just fix this. I'm gonna do everything I can. I'm gonna build these barriers. I'm gonna build these while somebody hurt me. So I'm never gonna get that close to anybody again. I'm gonna put these fig leaves on me. I'm gonna cover myself. That's what was happening. It was control. So now it's out of their realm of saying, okay, Jesus paid that price for sin, but what about, but what about shame? So first is fear, then it's control. It's doing what we can. See, in Ezekiel 37, all right, there's this, there's this, there's this prophet, and what's happening is these dry bones come to life. Now, here's, here's the cool things. Many of us, we want to cover ourselves before we get true deliverance and get freed from the inside. And that's what the fig leaves were doing. They were covering up the issue. See, the dry bones came to life before skin was put on them. We want to just cover things and hide it before the breakthrough actually comes. So what happens is when the dry bones came to life, it was the inside. It was the structure. It was the heart that was coming to life. Then skin was put on, and then they became flesh. See, here's the thing. That control, I'll just cover myself, and then I'll just hide. Now, now the third thing is isolation. It says, I was afraid because I was naked. And in verse 10, it then said, so I hid myself. So here's the deal. The third thing in shame, fear, control, then isolation. I've seen it so many times in the church, so many times that somebody messes up. They don't understand that the grace that Jesus has for them and the grace that the community of believers and the family has for them. So it's easier for them just to, just to believe these lies, control things, separate themselves, and begin to just leave the church and isolate themselves. Why? Because they were naked, they were afraid, and now they hid. So the third thing is isolation. Listen, that is never a great solution. You are not to meant to walk this planet alone. Why? Because Jesus designed this thing called family. He designed this thing called marriage. He designed this thing called family. He designed this thing called the bride, the church. Let me just remind you that the church is not a building, a structure, a program, or a system. The church is a beautiful people that actually loves each other even in the messes. The cool thing about walking out some of this, and the cool thing about sometimes having a pastor that walks with a limp, that was an atheist, that was suicidal, that was an alcoholic, 
I wasn't an abuser, an adulterer, all these things, is that I have received grace, so freely I give it. See, one of the benefits of coming to a place that's real and authentic and genuine and transparent and vulnerable is because we can talk about this stuff because we've been there but God. We've been there, but, and suddenly something happened on a road to Damascus when the enemy had this plan for me, but God had so much more. God took a zero and made him into a hero. Listen, I'm proud of the man I'm becoming. I'm still in process, I'm not perfect, and that's the awesome thing about being here. You don't have to be perfect, we're in process. We're not measuring perfection, we're, we're measuring what's your heart for the Father, because his heart's obviously for you. So this isolation thing is not the key. You got a family that loves you. You got a family that supports you. I can't tell you how many times we've had a family in need or a family going through some bad stuff or a family leaving to go on to another assignment and we bring them up to the middle here and the entire church surrounds them, lays hands on them to bless them and lift them up. Because there's some days, I love Nicole defined intercession. Nicole had this amazing definition last week of intercession. You, babe. I saw her head like perking up. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm talking about you. So she said, intercession is praying for those people that either can't pray for themselves, won't pray for themselves, or don't know how to pray for themselves. Listen, that's the beauty of family in his presence. That's the beauty of a, a family of believers called a beautiful bride. Listen, he references us as a bride because a bride's always beautiful. Guys, we don't marry ugly chicks. All right, we never, there better not be a man in here that thinks my bride was ugly on our wedding day. She was, she was, she got hit through that ugly tree and hit down every branch. No, we married beautiful brides. That's why he references that because we are beautiful and we're supposed to act beautiful and be beautiful. The fourth and final thing that, that shame leads to is blame. Genesis 3, 12 through 13, Adam begins to blame Eve and Eve begins to blame the enemy. So the first thing was, was fear, then control, then isolation, then blame. So I've left the church. I just, what I've done is too bad. I'm just going to remove. And then you start to think, no one loves me. Matter of fact, it was the pastor's fault. He never talks about this stuff. It was her fault. I, I text her once. She never texts me back. I text him. He never texts me. My phone fell in the ocean. Then it broke to pieces on a sailboat, okay? Went weeks without a cell phone. Don't be offended that somebody didn't shake your hand at church that day. It's these things that begin, we begin to believe these lies and then we blame others. Listen, the cool thing about being removed from Shane is that I get to own it. I sinned, I messed up. I'm not gonna walk this out. I'm gonna believe the truth and I'm gonna be vulnerable and let God see me naked. So what's Jesus' solution? First, his plan for shame was to love you, was to confront you, was literally, that's, that's the cool thing about family. We confront each other's messes. We dig in them. Man, what, what did Jesus do so many times in the Bible? He confronted sin and he talked right to the person, right, face to face, eye to eye. Not a keyboard warrior on Facebook. He got right in this lady's dirt who was caught in the act of adultery and he dug in her dirt. Why? Because he's not afraid to get in our mess He's not afraid to get dirty in our sin and in our shame. And then what'd he do? I believe it was because he wanted to catch her eye because somebody who has shame is usually looking down and insignificant and insecure. I think it was to catch her eye so that when he stood up and began to talk to her and before he said, 
go, sin no more. I think it was to catch your eyes, to lift it off. Listen, this, this is so amazing to think that Jesus met with a woman at a well. He, he, a boy with epilepsy, a, a guy with demons rose across an entire sea just to cast a demon out of one person. Like God's not afraid to get in our mess. He's not afraid to confront our sin and free us from the shame attached to it. Like he's not afraid of this. He loves it. So the first thing is he wants to love us. What did he do when, when, they, when he found this out? He began to ask them questions. He didn't say, why'd you do this? What? He didn't condemn them. He didn't, he didn't get angry at them. He created the solution. Let me move on here. The second thing is speak the truth. And the fourth thing was became the solution. So he loves us, confronts us, speaks the truths, and became the solution. Those are the four points that I just had to throw in there so I'd be a real preacher today. Listen, the story of Adam and Eve is a story of love. It, was, it is not a story of punishment. Now, there are consequences. There are, there are repercussions for our sin and choices in life. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But Jesus came to change that plan so that we can have eternal life through believing in him. Now, now here's, here's the amazing thing. He removes them from the garden for protection because then he says, listen, if you eat of this other tree at this point, because you're not mature, because you didn't pass this test of obedience, it'll be eternal separation from me. So in an, in an effort to keep his kids for an opportunity back to the Father forever and eternity, he removed them from the garden, set up guards to keep them out because he was fearful they wouldn't resist temptation again and they would eat from the other tree at this point and be eternal separated from them. God loves his children so much. He loves his family so much. He doesn't want to be eternally separated from us. So this was not punishment. It was protection. So Genesis 3, 9 says, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Listen, that, that is a... That is a question of intimacy. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us as our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, shame and guilt and conviction and thought patterns and lies. It's all attached on the umbrella of unrighteousness. See, righteousness is defined as right living in God, right thinking in God. It's defined as this right mark in God. So when he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, now all of a sudden we're cleansed from shame, we're cleansed from lies, we're cleansed from, from thought patterns that lead to destruction, we're cleansed from roots attached to the sin and hurts and habits and hang-ups and all these things, right? So this is an amazing thing. And then it goes on, Romans 10, 11 says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. <sighs> I love speaking on shame because I've seen shame take so much deeper root, honestly, than the sin, initial sin itself. I'm not saying sin's good. I'm not saying sin's okay, but the Bible says that we all fall short in sin. But then a lot of us then begin to attach shame to that sin and it controls us walking out in freedom who God's truly called us to walk in. Let me, let me move on here. 3.15 says this, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between you and your, the offspring and her offspring. He's confronting the enemy right now. He's speaking directly to the serpent. And it says this, he, Jesus, he shall bruise your head. And it says, and you shall bruise his heel. 
So if you remember, now this is the first prophetic verse about Jesus the Messiah. He's saying, now this is the solution. Jesus is becoming the answer to the sin and the shame, and he's becoming the fulfillment now of scriptures to come and all the prophecies to come. This is the first one. Now here's the thing about the heel. I'm like, that doesn't make sense in my theology. Jesus wins, he won't even get hurt in the process. He's so much bigger. It says in Romans 16, 20, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus will be with you. Now here's the cool thing. Literally, Satan is so small, he's under Jesus' feet. Now he's trying to do his thing. And sometimes we, we walk out with a limp. We walk out with a reminder. We walk out with, with a story for his glory. We walk out with something to say, no, I can relate to this. You know, I've never done heroin, but I can relate to a heroin addict through the things in my life that they were addicting. You know, I can relate to this because I have a story. I have, I have some scars. I have some bruises. I, I'm walking like Jacob with a limp because I wrestled. So here's it saying, now, crush Satan under our feet. Now, that's a sweet picture. Anybody else besides me ever pictured that? I get to crush Satan under my feet. Like a Nacho Libre kick. I'm going to ask the band to come. Listen, I feel this. God wants to do a shamectomy today. Anybody in the medical field knows that is the scientific word for the removal of shame. Anytime you see ectomy, it's a removal of certified paramedic. I didn't go through two years of school for nothing. Doing a shameectomy today. I believe he wants us to walk out here pure, shameless, unashamed, and total freedom in who God's called us to be. Why don't you stand with me? They're going to play and we're, we're going we're gonna to call to this. I believe that we're supposed to walk out who God's called us to be. And God has a plan in our life for total freedom. And I believe it's just what he wants to do today. I was reading in Colossians this morning. I was thinking about tying that in today. But, but in essence, Colossians 1, near the end of the chapter, it's talking about like the totalness of our freedom. Like the absolute radical freedom that Jesus paid a price for. Like, like I believe this, that he was broken so that we could be whole. All right, and I believe this. I believe that it's not just whole in our sin life that we can get a heaven ticket. I believe whole to the point of the life abundantly, the more abundant life that he promises, that we can actually walk out and walk into this earth and, and, and do what the Lord's Prayer says to do. Kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So walk a heaven abundant life on earth also. Like, man, crazy stuff happening. I've been in some fun places, <laughs> some scary places, some near-death experiences, to say the least, and, and had bad stuff happen. Why does good stuff happen to bad? Why does bad stuff happen to good people? I don't, I don't know. It's a trick question. I think bad stuff happens to all people. It's just how do we get through it? Like, we're in a sinful world. We're in a, we're in a, a world that has bad nature in it, that has people that don't know Jesus, that have love deficits that have issues, that they just need Jesus. This kid that did that last weekend, he, he has love deficits, he needs Jesus, he needed Jesus. There's no other answer to me. I, it's not the gun, I'm not gonna get political on you. People just need Jesus. Our world needs Jesus. Hitler needed Jesus. 
the true, the real, the living Jesus. I just, I can't help but think that that there is a life that's promised to me here on earth that is actually kind of like heaven. And when I'm walking with Christ, I'm literally, in a sense, walking with heaven. God is love. So I get to walk in that. And, and my kids, we do this declaration every day before school. And it's like, everywhere I go will be a freedom zone. That's one of the declarations. Today is going to be a good day. People are going to experience your presence through me. I will be the light in this darkness. Our, every day our kids do this thing. I don't even know how they've memorized it. I, I can't even get like four things in there right now. But they go through this whole long declaration every day they go to school because there's something powerful about us declaring these things. And I'm declaring today that I believe that each one of us are going to walk out of here free from shame, whether it's something you've been involved with or something that happened to you. Listen, that abuse was not your fault. Some of you have been in bad relationships. You've had bad divorces. You've had bad stuff happening to you, bad, you know, things from parents or loved ones or people that you trusted, maybe pastors or teachers or who knows what it is. Listen, that was not your fault. That wasn't God's plan for your life. Shame is not God's plan for your life. Sin is not God's plan for your life. Insignificance is not God's plan for your life. Insecurities are not God's plan for your life. Orphan thinking is not God's plan for your life. Like you were called to be a son and a daughter with living with and for and doing amazing things with the most amazing father, the king of